Good morning, Pathway Church. Good to see you today. Those of you online, it's good to know you're there. Uh, When my son, Corey, was uh, working on his master's degree in counseling, he called us one evening wanting to know about our family history. It was part of his assignment. And so he wanted to know about his grandparents and his great-grandparents. And it was kind of neat that he was interested in family. That's not always true. (laughs) Uh, And I thought, to some extent, we're all uh, a result of our histories uh, that, that we share together. As a pastor, I always know in every church I've been at, including this one, I stand on the shoulders of men and women who have gone before me, people of faith, who have paved the way. Some of them, you don't know their names, but God knows their names, that have made a difference in your life and my life and enabled us to be in this place today. Uh, several years ago, Phil Yancey wrote a book about the Bible Jesus read. Uh, We sometimes forget that Jesus' Bible was the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't there yet. And a lot of us kind of skip that Old Testament part because, let's face it, there's some weird stuff back there. There really is. You know, where did they come up with that? And why all these weird practices and stuff? But we need to realize that it's the Old Testament that's the foundation of our Christian faith on which we build. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some stories from those first five books, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, uh, stories to help us understand what it means to live in community with God. You and I were designed to live in community, to live in family. Psychologists tell us the number one problem facing people today, this was before covid Number one problem was aloneness and loneliness, disconnection with others. We live in gated communities. We have our groceries brought to us. We order online. We don't have connections with folks. We're alone. COVID has made that even more difficult for us, you know, more aloneness. Uh, Brenda's mom is in an assisted living, and there's been a couple of cases of uh, COVID-19 there. And so she's been in isolation for several weeks. That's very debilitating, very hard, not only on older people, but especially on older people. But even when we're in a crowd, sometimes we feel alone, don't we? It's not unusual over the years I've had people that I thought were really connected come to me and say, Pastor, I don't have a single friend in the church. I've been going there for 10 years. I don't know anybody. I don't connect with anybody. Uh, I'm alone. I'm, I'm, I'm lonely. Early in my ministry, I was called to the hospital. A young firefighter in our church was driving down one of the main roads in Clearwater on his motorcycle, and a lady came out from a side street, didn't see him, rammed into the motorcycle, crushing his right leg. It had to be amputated. He's in the hospital, lingering between life and death. And I got there early the next morning, and his whole family had been there all night, and they were in the waiting room asleep. So I walked in, and I was talking to him. And he said, Pastor, I would come in and out of consciousness, and I'd see my family and my friends around the room. And yet I felt alone because I was the only one that was dying right then. Maybe you feel that way today. You're alone. No one knows what you're going through. No one knows what you're thinking. 
No one knows how desperate your life has become. I want you to know that this sermon series is for you. It's to encourage you to know that we can be connected. The series is called Roots. God designed us for relationships. That's why there's this hunger in our hearts to connect with folks. Because we weren't designed to live life alone. We weren't designed to be hermits. We were designed to be in relationship. Do you realize the Ten Commandments, that four of them are about our relationship with God. Six are about our relationship with others. All ten are about relationships. If I could take you back to the mindset of people who were hearing for the first time Genesis 1-1. It was a radical thought. Now, even before it was written down, the stories were told around campfires about this God who created. It says, and this is not controversial to us, but it was to them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, today it's kind of controversial because there's a lot of people through scientific beliefs that say uh, there was a big bang and out of nothingness there was something. But in the days of the first telling, there was no belief of a God who created. There were many gods, all of them very limited in their powers, and some of them kind of limited in their their morality. As a result, whatever area of your life where you needed help, you went to that God and you prayed to that God. So if you wanted to have a family, you prayed to the fertility God. The fertility cults that grew up around those fertility gods led to prostitution and all kinds of crazy things. We read about it actually when the people from those cults began to come into the church at Corinth. You know, uh, it, was, it was a crazy time. Many of them appealed to heavenly bodies like the sun or the moon and the stars as they prayed for those things. In Acts 17, in Athens, Paul goes to the people and they got all these gods and they have an unknown God and he talks to them about that unknown God. These attempts to appeal to these gods who controlled our lives led to some pretty bizarre and sick behavior like sacrificing of children and other human people to gain the favor of the gods. The prevailing belief of that day was life was an endless cycle built around death. And you circled, you were born, you grew older, you died, and the next person was born and grew older. It was kind of a a morbid view of existence. And into that view, Genesis speaks these words, in the beginning, God created. This all-powerful God created everything. And there's some things that we learn about this creation. God had community in mind from the very beginning. Before there was anything, God had community in mind. The concept of the Trinity is kind of a tough one, isn't it, for us to explain to people? Maybe it's tough for you to understand. How's God three things? You know, how's that work? It's kind of a strange deal. Uh, You know, the Father... The Son and the Holy Spirit. And I remember when our son Brent, our youngest son, he kept a young girl from uh, China uh, 
Vivian stayed with them for a year. She was going to school at our Christian school in, in Daytona. She came from a very pagan background. She knew nothing about Christianity. And so her very first Bible class, they talk about the Trinity. And, she, and you're supposed to write something about it. And she comes home totally confused. What, what is that? What's that all about? And, and Brent used the deal of uh, water. You heat it, it becomes steam. You freeze it, it becomes ice. It's all the same thing, but different representations of that same thing. This morning, I, I have some chairs over here, and these three chairs represent the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're separate, but the same. In Genesis 1.1, it says that God created the heavens and the earth. In James 1.17, it talks about that he's this heavenly light, and all good gifts come from the Father. But when you get to verse 2 of Genesis, it says, The Spirit of God hovers over the waters. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's very similar language to the Spirit hovering over Jesus at baptism and the dove descends. Remember? It's that same kind of uh, language. And then in verse 3, it says that God spoke the word, and creation began to happen. God said, let there be light, and there was light. John 1.1 and John 1.14 tells us what this word is. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and glory. Jesus was that living word at creation. So out of this Trinitarian family, this grouping, God begins to create. He doesn't create because he's lonely. He doesn't create because he's bored. He creates because God has his heart to include more in his community. He wants his family bigger, and he makes it bigger. And you notice the fourth chair. It's not in the circle. It's over here. This chair is all of us before we came to Christ, when we were broken and we were lost, we were hurting and scared. And what's interesting, to move this chair, my chair, into this community Think about what it cost. What did it cost for you to be in this community, for me to be in this community? What did price did the Word pay, did Jesus pay for us to be there? He died on a cross. He suffered so that you and I could be a part of this incredible family that God has. We are not little gods. We are adopted sons and daughters into the family. I love this quote by Dallas Willard. God's aim in history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. Now, not only did God create this community, God wanted this community to be an incredible place. You know, it's one thing to be a part of a family. There's some families you might not want to be a part of. 
But this is a family you want to be in. When I first went to Florida as a young pastor, 23 years old, I had a t-shirt I used to wear. It said, if you live a good life, say your prayers. When you die, you'll go to Kentucky. Sorry, not Ohio. <laughs> that didn't go over really big in Florida. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I was young and dumb at that time. But uh, a couple years ago, Brent and I went out to uh, Estes Park and the Rocky National uh, Park out there. And uh, just incredible place. We always, we just, we, we sit there and we're just in awe of the majesty of God's creation. And we go, wow, God did this. It's the thumbprint of God. If you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, it's the thumbprint of God. This awesome world, this beautiful world that God has made. But there's a hidden danger in creation. And the danger is that we begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. Listen to what it says in Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. It's an enticing trap for us to fall in love with the creation, isn't it? You know, to fall in love with the car we drive or that special house that we've built or, uh, you know, that certain degree that we've achieved and, and how much do you make and, you know, who do you know? And we find ourselves clinging to material things. And they can become our house of worship, our place of worship. We find ourselves spending all of our time trying to accumulate more stuff. Uh, I sometimes share that the, one of the great businesses in this country are storage units, where we pay a lot of money, billions of dollars, to store the stuff we can't fit into our house, you know? Uh, and you think about that. It's kind of silly, isn't it? And I say that, and I have one right now. <laughs> Perhaps there's nothing that encapsulates the American mindset better than this ad by a car company a few years ago. You can't buy happiness, but now you can lease it, you know? <laughs> Notice the creation story does not create the sun and the moon and the stars until the fourth day. That's significant because people worshiped the sun, the moon, and the stars. And the creation story reminds us by its order that they're just the creation. That's all they are. And we sometimes give things an elevation they do not deserve. I think one of the challenges that COVID-19 has brought to us is that it's taken us outside the house, you know. For several weeks, we weren't here. And there's still a lot of you that aren't here. And what's interesting is, for many times, this place became where God dwells, this building. Well, guess what? God doesn't dwell here unless you're here. This building's just a building until you come. You know, the body of Christ is the place of worship, not the building. Don't fall in love with things. It's sad when we do that. I think one of the challenges of every believer is to hold things loosely in our hands. Brenda has a rule at our house. There's nothing in our house that she wants there that can't be broken by our kids or grandkids, especially grandkids. 
Now, I sometimes struggle with that rule a little bit, you know, because there's some things I really like, you know. But the point is, houses are to be lived in, not worshipped, right? When Brenda and I were uh, youth ministers 100 years ago, uh, before we were married, we were engaged. We went, uh, we lived in dorm rooms, you know, and they're real crowded, and you had a roommate, and, you know, little tiny places. And this couple from our church invited us over to their home, and it was gorgeous. Oh, man. Beautiful place. Pristine. And they invited us into the living room, and it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. All of their furniture was covered in plastic. You sat on plastic in the living room. And I thought, something's wrong with this picture. You know, things are made to be used, not, not worship. Not to separate us from community, but to build community. What things does God value most? It's kind of a trick question because God doesn't value things. God values people. People are precious in God's sight. And he makes us very clear that he wants us to value community the same way he values community. Listen to what it says in John 17. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may see that you have sent me. Jesus' goal was for us to live in community in such a way that the world would see that God has sent his son to die on a cross for you and I and for the world that's broken. Let me ask you this morning, is there any relationship in your life, anything in your life that you value more than God? in your relationship with him, a bank account, the next, next big deal, even your family. I'm often sad as, as I watch parents work so hard, one job, two jobs, three jobs, to accumulate stuff, lots of stuff, better stuff, bigger stuff. And they fail to pour their lives into this precious gift that God has given them, their children, that we don't own, but we care for for a few years a very few years they're the true treasure in your home not what's in your garage not the boat you got parked out back it's it's your children and the greatest gift you can ever give your children is not to leave them a million dollars the greatest gift you could ever give your children is to introduce them to Jesus who will love them forever it's the greatest gift you could ever give. Now, there's nothing wrong with appreciating and applauding incredible things that God has created. But don't fall in love with them and don't worship them and don't let them rob you of your worship of God. I had a good friend from West Virginia. His name was Ted, Ted Bogus. Ted was an architect and uh, the first church I served as a youth, uh, youth pastor, the second church I served as a youth pastor in Ponca City, Oklahoma. He was the designer, the architect for the new sanctuary. And I don't know how this happened. The pastor was smarter than me. He put me, a 21-year-old, in charge of the building committee to build the new sanctuary. So I, I got to know Ted, and then when we came to Clearwater, we built a new church, relocated, and, and he was our architect. And my favorite Ted story is as he was first becoming successful, the car dealer in town, a Mercedes dealer, parked a Mercedes in his driveway. And they said, you know, just, just drive around, Ted, and let us know what you think. You know how that works, right? You know. 
And so Ted had always wanted a Mercedes. But the week that they parked it in his driveway was the week of the building fund campaign at his church. He didn't drive it all week. At the end of the week, he drove it back to the dealership and pledged the amount of the Mercedes to the building fund campaign. God wants us to worship him, not creation. He wants us to have a relationship with people and with the people that he loves more than the stuff that he's created. Now, Ted got his Mercedes, but it was later in his life. Remember who you are. One of the dangers we face is as as the centerpiece of God's creation, we sometimes forget who we are. We do. We often find people between two extremes in life, and uh, they're equally exclusive of God. We make it happen. We, they owe us, you know, the people that kind of had that idea that I'm a mover and shaker and, and God owes me. Some time ago, I was running on a treadmill watching television. That's what I like about treadmills. You can watch TV. And they were interviewing a 25-year-old. Well, actually, they were interviewing the parents of a 25-year-old who had moved back home. And uh, he slept at noon and didn't want to work. He liked to play music. And the father was ready to throw him out on the street. Mom was a little more hesitant. But what was amazing to me is they then interviewed the young man. And he didn't even realize there was a problem. He said, you know, if mom and dad want to work like that, that's their business. That's not how I want to live. That's, that's, not, that's not what I'm choosing to do. What he failed to realize, the only way he could live his lifestyle was to live off the hard work that they had done for years and years and years. His life attitude was, life owes me. You owe me something. There are those who have that attitude with God. I'm a pretty good guy. God owes me. He's not going to hurt me. God, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm no worse than most people. God owes me. To those of us who are full of pride, Genesis 3.19 reminds us how frail we really are. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. At the other end of the spectrum, we have those who treat life as chance, as random selection, you know, uh, you're just an accident. You're just a part of the evolutionary chain. You're an ape that lost its tail. You're on your way. You know, you're, you're, you're an important person, but, but you're just a survival of, of the fittest. And therefore, it's okay to terminate a life uh, through abortion. Uh, life is not precious. Life is regulated to selection, survival of the fittest. Genesis tells us a very different story. Although we are dust, we are made in the very image of God. Between these true extremes are God's truth about creation. Human beings are the crown jewel of God's creation. Yet we are not God. Remember, we've learned that several times in the last few weeks. We've been offered this incredible opportunity to be his children, but we must not believe that we've done something to deserve this. As a human, I should never ask for what I deserve because I deserve hell, but by grace, by grace, God offers us heaven. God's community seeks to include me, not to kick me out. I love this. 
God's community seeks to include me, not kick me out. As we read Genesis, it's obvious that all along, God's desire was to bless his creation, and he wanted to do it through us. He made us the caretakers of the world, right? He put us in charge, which is scary. But sin messed up the plan. But this is the important part. Just because sin messed up the plan, it did not change God's love for us. That's why he sent Jesus. He still loves us. So he had to find another way. You see, God's love for us is not based on our performance. What it says in Ephesians, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Each year I perform several marriage ceremonies. You know, in marriage ceremonies, you make vows, and sometimes the people are nervous. They don't want to write their own vows. They ask me to give them the vows. And so here's the vows. I promise to love you until things sag. I will love you until your hair grows thin. I will love you as long as you provide for me the things that I want. I will love you until you become sick and cannot remember things well. No, those aren't the vows. I promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband or wife, for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, to cherish as long as we both shall live. And even in death, that love does not stop. The early disciples, they walked with Jesus, but when he was crucified and resurrected and went away, they still were in love with Jesus. It didn't change. And people who have impacted our lives, even though they're no longer here, we're still in love with them. They still impact our lives. We know in our hearts that love based on physical appearance or financial stability is shallow love, right? True love keeps on in the toughest of circumstances. Paul uses the marriage contract to describe God's love for us. He shares that when we move our chair into the community, we find a love that withstands life's storms. He says it so eloquently in Romans. What then can, be set, can we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father, is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he answers his own question. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Almost 20 years ago now, be 20 in November, our middle son Jeff and Miranda were married. They stood at the front of the church and they repeated their marriage vows. But their marriage was a little more inclusive than most because it was 
Jeff and Miranda and Micah. When Miranda was a senior in high school, she'd gotten away from the Lord. She got pregnant. She had a baby. His name was Micah. She put herself through college as a, as a single mom. When Jeff and Miranda fell in love and, and Miranda fell in love with Jesus, she's one of the most incredible Christ followers I know today. But uh, at, when they fell in love and, and they decided to get married, Micah was there as a two-year-old, and our big task for the whole wedding was to keep him. He was crazy. He would run all over the place to keep him there. And there was a point in the service where Jeff went over to Micah, and Micah had not ever met his biological father until two years ago. He went over and knelt in front of Micah, and he said, Micah, I love you, and I choose to make you a part of our family, and I want you to know that you're going to be my son. It was powerful. It was a powerful moment. And because Micah is Jeff's son, he's our dearly beloved grandson. Now, we have nine grandchildren, and Micah's no different than the other eight. They're all the same, you know. And when you come into God's family, you're not on probation. You know, you're not quite as good as Billy Graham. No, you're, we're all the same. You're right there with Billy Graham, you know. Think about it. He doesn't see us any differently. We're his beloved children that he loves. All of us were at one time orphans. We were sitting in that chair far outside the circle. I love what First Peter says. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Perhaps this morning, you're sitting in this chair, and it's over here. And you're tired. Tired of being alone. You're tired of being afraid. You're tired of being angry. You're tired of being scared. You're tired of being bitter. And I want to invite you this morning on behalf of my Savior to move your chair into this circle of love. There's a place for you. There's always a place for you. And he invites you this morning to be a part of this amazing family that we sometimes call the church. We're going to sing in a minute. And when we do, I would invite you to just say, God, I'm tired of being alone. I want to be a part of a family, a family of eternal love where there's a place even for me. Let's pray. Father, today we come to you realizing that none of us are worthy to be adopted sons or daughters. We haven't done enough. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. But you've called us worthy. And because you've called us worthy, we can belong. There's a place for us. So today, Lord, thank you for the gift. We gladly accept it. We give you our brokenness, our sin, our hurts. And we accept your love and forgiveness and grace. Thank you for this amazing family. In Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.
with a melody you surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone I'm no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God and I'm no longer a slave to fear I am a child
I'm no longer a slave. I am a child of God. So I'll just leave you with this the truth from the Lord. If to know Christ is to be a part of his family, say that with me. To know Christ is to be a part of his family. You belong, church. God bless you.